Stay hungry, stay foolish. Faced with the choice of starting a company or joining a large corporation, Steve Jobs believed that it was more fun to be a pirate than join the Navy. But for innovators inside established corporations, making a distinction between being a pirate and joining the Navy is a fallacy. We have to figure out a way to become pirates in the Navy. There is nothing harder in business than trying to innovate within large organizations. Innovators in big companies often face internal opposition as well as their external competitors. It is the management of the core business that tends to get in the way of innovation. If you work in corporate innovation, if you run an innovation lab, or like me, you worked in an organization trying to make it into more, be more pirate, this book is an uncomfortable read that makes you look in the mirror. It makes you realize that when you point the finger, there's three pointing back at you. And it did a fantastic job of doing that. And I welcome heartily Tendaya Viki, author of Pirates in the Navy, How Innovators Lead Transformation. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you, Aidan. Really, really great pleasure for me to be here with you. Great news. I have a copy of this book up for grabs. It's, a, as I said, a fantastic read. So well written, written in scar tissue. I could see there, Tendai, as well, that there's so much uh, understanding of actually what goes on in innovation within organizations. But most importantly, as I said, it turns the mirror onto the corporate innovator, the pirate themselves. And I have a copy up for grabs. Just sign up to the innovationshow.io newsletter or look out for us on LinkedIn when we share little excerpts and you will be in with a chance to win. So let's dive into this book. When Steve Jobs said that it was more fun to be in a pirate than join the Navy, he was highlighting the fact that large companies are much slower to respond to change than startups. This is the speedboat versus oil tanker conundrum. The bureaucracy that runs many established companies is inadvertently designed to create inertia, and this is not very helpful in such a fast-paced, changing world. That's almost like the job, if you want to think about it, right? And I, and I like the way that you know you you describe that the book is written in scar tissue, right? It's really the experience of of like running up against this wall all the time. So I mean, most companies are started by entrepreneurs, and then you know, those entrepreneurs decide that at some point they found something that works and now they want to scale it and grow it. And if they pivot to scaling and growing what they've discovered works, they build in all this bureaucracy to help the company scale and grow, which is a good thing because if you find something profitable, you should scale and grow it. That's basically the capitalist imperative, if you want to call it that. But eventually, when the moment comes somewhere down the road where you have to go back to entrepreneurial behavior, your success has created new muscles in your behavior and new habits in your organization that then start to get in the way of the, of the ability of these teams to be fast-moving, testing, iterative, throwing away things that don't work, right? Now they're kind of caught up in this plan, roadmap, execute cycle, which doesn't really work for innovation projects. You've mentioned many times throughout the book that being a corporate innovator or a pirate has a myth around it that it's a sexy job and it's great and you know you're eating great healthy food and on bean bags and playing you know snooker or pool all the time and in a lot of companies it's actually career suicide while startups are focused on resisting enemies and competitors that are outside their company entrepreneurs or innovators within large companies have to contend with enemies and competitors inside the companies themselves 
I, I once I once met a guy. His name was John, actually, but I won't say his surname. But his name was <laughs> John Smith. <laughs> John Smith. Yeah, I once met a guy, and he was head of innovation. And he said to me, "Do you know what's happening to the people that work for me? People are coming up to my to my to my to my colleagues that are that are kind of my direct reports, and saying to them, why do you work for John? Like, why would you ever make such a career limiting move as to work for John? You need to find something." That's much more useful for you, and he's surprised. He was surprised that his team was getting this sort of advice from their, from their friends, and that's what it's like being trying to drive innovation inside large organizations. It's not sexy at all. Most of the time, you're fighting turf wars around resourcing, around being allowed to run experiments, around changing how the company organizes itself. And if you if you ever make the mistake of working on a product or, or service that kind of cannibalizes the existing business, then good luck to you. Like every single person who has a vested interest in the old way of doing things will be fighting you all the way. And you go on to say here, Tendai, that the buzz of innovation is everywhere. The jargon, labs, accelerator, startup, it's hard to keep up. And yet corporate leaders are slowly waking up to the fact that they may have been victims of innovation mythology. You share several innovation myths. I'd love if you'd share these with us. Before I share with you the myths, right, I want to like lay the blame squarely on corporate innovators. Because these leaders didn't get these myths while they were just out golfing with their friends or hanging out with their families. These leaders learned these myths by meeting corporate innovators who came in and said, we're going to help you set up innovation. We're going to help you do labs. And so they start learning things like, you know, technology is the same as innovation, right? So we're going to start exploring AI, but technology is not the same as innovation, right? Technology is a small component, right? But you need to then combine that with value propositions that resonate with customers and business models that work. Another one of my favorite one is a lean startup myth. You can always pivot your way to success, right? Like, you no, know, that's not the role of pivoting, right? We pivot in search of value. And after a few of those attempts, we need to come to the conclusion of whether or not there's any value there and then stop. So the Lean Startup movement is not to ensure that every single thing succeeds, right? The, the, the methodology is to make sure that we find things that work and also find things that don't work. So leaders need to be paying attention to building portfolios that work in that way. You know, another myth is you need to make big bets. I once met a leader that was like, I'm looking for a 10x idea. It's like, well, there's no way that you're ever going to know that something is a 10x idea on day one, right? The best way to find good ideas is to have loads of ideas. And so, and then like make small bets on loads of ideas and then over time see which ones of those can become 10x ideas. And so all of these things are, are you know, are things that are just out there in, in, in the world. Never mind the lab, the whiteboard, the sticky notes, the football tables, the bean bags, the, 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 the chef, that makes you vegan meals, whatever it is, that's like, you know, the hip stuffing these days. And that's all of that is not really what we're looking for when we're trying to drive authentic innovation inside large organizations. One of the interesting myths you talked about was that oftentimes uh, an entrepreneur will join an organization believing that there's the organization is doing really well, it's got profits, so therefore there's more funds available for experimentation and exploration. But in fact, startups are way better funded and they don't have their budgets pulled from under their feet. Yeah, I mean, there's a venture capital money. I mean, you can see what's happening, right? 
there's a lot of venture capital money going in, 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 into startup. It seems that the world is awash with money. I mean, you could you could be like a WeWork founder and and like lose money, and they'll buy you out with more money just to let you go. Like, there's so much money going into startups, and so this idea that if you are in working in a large company, you can outcompete startups on resources. I think this is a myth. If you're joining a large company, you could probably outcompete startups on access to customers and access to markets because you can leverage what the large company already has, given that they'll let you do that. But you cannot outcompete startups when it comes to resources. They have more resources, and whenever there's a crisis out there in the world, there's no venture capital, you know, venture capitalist that phones the startup and goes, "Hey, startup A, you know that money we gave you? Can we have some of it back?" That, that <laughs> never happens, right? And the reason why that never happened is because there's an there's an exchange there's an exchange of equity when that money is given. So the money now belongs to the startup. So that's the real difference between that and 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 large organizations. And one of the other ones I wanted to talk about, and we we might talk a bit about innovation theater in a little while, but. This is talking about the entrepreneur or the corporate innovator is that oftentimes it is a misperception to to think that they're driven by money because true innovators are actually driven by success. They they don't want to just participate in rearranging the deck chairs and the Titanic or lipstick on a pig projects. They want true transformation and that is the reward for them. The authentic innovator is interested in making sure that they create something of value that lasts. And that's what makes them authentic. They're not interested in having pizza nights and events and all this other stuff that we try and call innovation. They're really interested in discovering what works and making sure they kind of create value with that. And that's what really motivates them if they're authentic. I think one of the I think one of the challenges though that companies have is if I'm an entrepreneur in your organization and I keep creating these million dollar businesses for you, <laughs> but I don't have a stake in any of it. Like after a while, you need to start thinking about how do you incentivize people by giving them a stake in the success they're creating. So that's just a challenge that organizations sort of face. And another myth you talk about, which is really important, is that it's all about technology and R&D. While exploring new technologies can be exciting, innovation is much, much broader. It's about creating value for customers with business models that can scale. Again, like the same thing, ideas are a dime a dozen. R&D is not the same thing as innovation. Um, a really great study that's been run by PricewaterhouseCoopers, uh, they have a division called Strategy and, and they've been running this sort of piece of research on the, with their Innovation 1000 ranking that they do every year. And they've been like mapping the relationship between how much companies invest in R&D as a percentage of revenue versus like returns, you know, like, you know, profits, stock market valuation, et, et, et cetera. And in that whole time, They've been unable, like 15 years of analysis, they've been unable to find a correlation between investments in R&D and returns. The correlation is close to zero. And when you see a zero correlation, it means that like pretty much one has nothing to do with the other. You do need to invest in R&D uh, in order to create great technologies, but unless you're able to transform those technologies into great products, solutions that create value for customers and business models that can scale, doesn't really matter. Like you can, It's like, you know, the... The, you know, on Dragon's Den, you see them all the time, the starving inventor, right? I invented a toilet that also brushes your hair. <laughs> I don't want, I don't want, I don't want, I don't want, I'm out, I'm out. It's like, I'm out, you know, because, and, and, and the guys are like, how much money did you put in? The $200,000 of my own money. It's like, that's crazy, right? Go find something else to do. This is not a scalable product. 
And that's why there's like, you know, hundreds of thousands of patents in the US patents office. And like only like a small percentage of those ever become companies that have become successful. That's just the distance you have to travel. The other myth that I thought we'd touch on is that, and, th and this is more important probably for the organizations themselves, is that they believe that they can't learn innovation, that they can't infiltrate the culture of the organization. And this is often propagated by the press and magazines and blogs, et cetera, et cetera, that kind of shows the, the fate accompli of a great product, but doesn't show all the pivots and failures that it took to get there. You know how like Virgin Atlantic was started, right? I mean, you know, Mr. Bron Mr. Branson was just sitting somewhere. His flight was canceled and he decided that he was going to charter a plane, put people on it. And then, bada bing, bada boom, we had a... <laughs> oh, yeah, like, that's exactly how it works. He's like, no, that's not how it works. Like, that's not what happened. That must might have been the inspiration for him to start something. But that's actually what... That's not what happened. Like, behind that, there was then fundraising, finding the right airlines, doing deals with manufacturers, getting slots at airports, all of these business model things that had to be built, the crazy competition that he had to engage in with British Airways where they almost went bust. All of these things were things that had to be built in the background. So when we go, yeah, but a bing, but a boom, and then you bought an island, right? <laughs> it's like, that's not how innovation works. Everybody wants to be Steve Jobs, but the Steve Jobs they want to be is the one on stage presenting the iPad not the day-to-day -day one that's working on grinding and figuring out how things work. And so that's a, a really important thing to pay attention to when you start telling these innovation stories. Like, it's almost like Eric Ries calls it, um, you know, in the movie, there's this part of the movie where they do this, like, high-speed shots of, like, did this move the story ahead? Like, the guy's like, you know, he, he's on a boat, and then he's in a car, and then he's in a plane, and then, and then boom, he's in the city. That's what we do when we tell... When we tell entrepreneurial stories, we skip over all the boring, dirty grind. And yet, like, that boring, dirty grind is actually 90% of the work. The, you know, the fun parts are only a very small percent of the work. Yeah. This is what I love about this book is that it exposes all those things. But as I said, when you're pointing the finger, there's three pointing back on you. And if you're a corporate innovator, and it makes you look in the mirror and go, what did I do to contribute to the, maybe the downfall of a lab or maybe I was let go by the organization or maybe I gave them reason to frustrate me so much that I left myself. And one of the sources of this you talk about is innovation theater. And oftentimes it's not the organization that creates the innovation theater, it's the innovator themselves. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like the CEO is like, cool, I hired some innovation guys. I, I, I put out a call for an entrepreneur in residence and you know, a few former startup founders applied and now I have one. Go do some innovation stuff. And, you know, the, the entrepreneur in residence goes, great, I'm going to start a lab. And in the lab, I'm going to have the stuff I've already made, follow up, sticky notes. But real, the focus of the lab will be events. We'll have hackathons. We'll have idea competitions and all of that stuff. And it's just like, oh, man, once <laughs> you do all of that stuff, what are you doing to make sure that you get value? And that's what really, really matters. Like, how are you making sure that you, you actually create value? And so, you know, it, it, in innovation theater is stuff that looks like innovation, but ultimately creates no value. Or like, or like Rita McGrath likes to say, it's this excessive focus on ideation, generating ideas, and everything that comes with ideation without thinking about how those ideas become something that actually creates value. And so I'm really, really passionate about the authenticity of the innovator. Like, what are they authentically interested in? And there's only two things you can be authentically interested in. One is creating value, impact for customers, new revenues, new profits. 
And then the other thing you can be passionately interested in is helping your company create a culture where innovation is repeatable. So you build the right structures, you build the right processes for that organization to do it over and over again. Those are the two jobs of the innovator. You have to pick one of those, but you those are, those are, those are the two jobs. It is not to have events or competitions, right? The, the question is, what are all those things in service of? And if you're not asking yourself that question, you're actually doing more damage than than than, than helping. Because I've met CEOs that will tell me, yeah, we tried the innovation thing. It doesn't work. And I'm like, yeah, well, well, tell me what happened. Well, we did an idea competition and we, and we picked a winner. Okay, so what happened to the winner? Well, we asked them to write a 35-page business case. Like, okay, there you go. You started off the right way and then you broke it halfway down. And then you're saying, we tried the innovation thing and it, and it doesn't work. You know, it's, it's really important that we have authentic innovators inside, inside companies. Here's one of the things that made me think of. So I would call myself a... I, I would say I have scar tissue from from making the, some of these mistakes in the book, a lot of them. And, you know, I worked in a very complex organization and I went in as head of innovation and it feels great and it feels like, great, I can make a difference here, I can change things, et cetera, et cetera. What I realized was I was lacking a lot of the tools to do so. But more important is, you know, we talk often on the show about an innovator is like a farmer. They don't, or a leader in an organization, they don't, they don't make crops grow, but they create the environment for the crops to grow in. And I often thought that an innovator before they even join an organization needs to have a set of questions, if they're authentic about the innovation, to kind of go, is the organization ready for me? Is it ready to innovate? Is it ready for the crops to grow, for business models to scale, et cetera, et cetera? I'd love your thoughts on them because there's some questions you say we need to ask before we even consider taking such a job. So you so there's two types of innovators, right? In that in that question you, you you just asked me, there's the innovator that cannot be bothered with building new roads, pioneering into the West, and and building new infrastructure and building new roads and 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 creating new processes. They'd rather join an organization that already has those things in place. And so if you're doing an interview, you might want to talk to the leaders and find out what they already have in place whether innovation is a protected budget, uh, you know, what level does the head of innovation sit inside an organization, right? Because sometimes the head of innovation, that's what they're called, where they report to the VP who reports to the SVP, who reports to the CTO, who <laughs> reports to the CEO. So they're head of innovation, but they're so low in the organization that they don't have any power or influence. So, you know, all of those things are, are signals about how seriously the organization is taking, you know, the, you know, the innovation and the creation of, of new ideas. So those are things that you that that you can look at, and, and and what will happen is there'll be very few jobs you can get where all of those things are in place. So as you become a head of innovation now, you you then need to think about whether you want to tech because that's the fun part. Like being able to build this stuff is actually the fun part. So you know, for people like me, so when I I I, I want to go into an organization where nothing is there, but I don't want to be so disingenuous that I pretend that everything is fine. Right? I'd love to go to an organization where nothing is there. All I need are a few leaders that are early adopters that are willing to start working with me. I just need a hook. Right? If you give me that hook, I can leverage that hook into early wins. If I get early wins, I can leverage those early wins to influence the rest of the organization. This was so important because, you know, you, you, we hear about, oh, it's about 
culture or it's about learning and it's about making mistakes and learning from those mistakes and infusing that into the culture of the organization. But you say your job as a pirate in the Navy is to show leaders that you are creating value, not just learning. You have to, you have worked with innovation teams where they were mostly focused on hosting events to drive culture change, done that, mea culpa, by the way. And the whole idea is, well, I'll, I'll get some early wins and I'll bring in some new thinking and I'll bring in some keynote speakers and et cetera, et cetera. And then all of a sudden you find yourself in going, going, what have I actually really achieved here? Because that's ultimately what leadership's going to ask. What's the return on investment on this lab and on your your wages? A really great company, right, is, is, um, is, is Ping An. Ping An is this uh, Chinese sort of insurance company with them. Um, that sort of trans, you know, transformed itself to be like a technology platform with various other products. And um, Jessica Tan, who was hired by Peter Marr to be like co-CEO and drive th- this innovation, she 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 says in, in, in an interview that she asked Peter Marr, so what if we fail? Because what you're trying to do here has never been done before in, in this space. So what if we don't actually succeed? And 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 and, and Peter Marr said, yeah, we, we, we might fail and, and I'm okay with that. As long as you genuinely try. Oh, very good. Right? As long as you fail, but you're genuinely trying to create value. You're genuinely trying to launch products. You're genuinely talking to customers. You're genuinely building value propositions. You're launching things in the market and seeing what works versus what doesn't work. As long as you're genuinely trying, leaders can accept that, especially if you take them along the journey and show them how you're genuinely trying. The most of the time, innovation teams are not even trying. Right, they're simply just having events, pizza nights, rude word nights. <laughs> <You know? laughs> they're having all types of nights. They're having speakers come in. They're walking around the organization with a PowerPoint presentation, talking about Facebook, Amazon, and Google. Like they're just doing all of these things. And what they're doing, right? In one sense, it, so in one sense, maybe to call them disingenuous might not be correct. Like maybe what they're trying to do, and I'm just thinking about this now while I'm speaking to you. Maybe what they're trying to do is to make sure that they have the perfect environment first before they start working on ideas. And that's just never going to happen for you because the years and years you spend on that political campaign without showing leaders any value just count against you. Like, we've been paying you now for three years. What have you done? You're like, well, you know, we've learned a lot. You know, we now understand the culture better. Like, that's not what we brought you here for. We brought you here to start creating value. And so... It's something that we really need to think about and make explicit in our in, in our thinking as we as we start to do the work. You've made me come to this one where this is a really uncomfortable one because it's happening all the uh, all over the world at the moment, which is a lot of labs are getting closed because companies are receding because of the effects of the pandemic, etc. And over the last few years, you've spoken to various innovation managers who are furious that their company has decided to close down the labs they were running. And these managers clearly felt that the leadership in their companies comprised of MBA types, as they're called, who just don't get innovation. But then you ask the hard questions. And when you drill down into the work that these so-called innovation labs were doing day to day, you often discover that actually the innovation managers were the ones who didn't get innovation. Yeah, absolutely. Because you ask them, okay, so great. So your boss was wrong to shut down your lab. Okay, fantastic. So can you just describe to me like, what your innovation portfolio looks like. And they go, what do you mean an innovation portfolio? Like, the moment, the moment you ask me that question, I know straight away that you were not, you were not creating any value. Like, and, and then they say to me, no, 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 no. We didn't work on products. We were working on the culture. Right? And that's always the cop-out 
that an innovator uses when they're not trying to create value. They say, we're working on the culture. Well, what's the point of working? How do we know that you've successfully worked on the culture? What is the metric that shows us that you've successfully worked on the culture? Here's an interesting and annoying fact. The only way we know that you've successfully worked on the culture is if the culture starts spinning up new products continuously. The thought here is really important because you not only say that, okay, you need to, a, a clear metric for success when it comes to innovation like that, for example, how many products have you spun out? How many have you tried? How many have you brought to market? And one of the things you talk about, and it derives from the work from Steve Blank and Eric Reese that you mentioned, is getting out of the building, talking to customers. And that, that can be difficult for a few reasons. One is sometimes the innovation team couldn't be bothered doing that because that's really hard work. But the other times you have the protective sales director not letting the innovation team near the customer in case they change their mind, in case they cannibalize their product set. And that's a big challenge in, in, inside large organizations. And if you're in a highly regulated environment, access to customers is even harder. But that's the job. Like It's your job to figure that out. And so, I mean, I have some sympathy for that struggle. But it's almost like, yeah, I mean, if you're a doctor who works in the ER, you can't say that, oh, like, oh look at all these injured people coming through the ER. Like, that's <laughs> what you're that's what, you, that's what you're there for. Like, I wish there were no injured people here. <laughs> well, if there were no injured people there, there'd be no ER. So that's the same thing. Like, if the company already had access to customers, already had a clear process, they wouldn't need you in the organization. The reason why they need you in the organization is, is to ensure that, you know, those things start happening well. And I've worked with several organizations and teams that have, that have figured that out. You know, pharma companies that have built really great patient panels, you know, uh, uh, really great banking organizations that have built really great labs with access to customers and testing and a process that you know, doesn't have sales directors getting in the way. All of that stuff has been authentically built by people who care about creating real value because that's the job. That's the job of being a pirate in the Navy. If you don't like that job, which is fair, like it's fair for you not to like that job. What's unfair is for you not to like that job and still insist that you're going to be ahead of innovation. You raised some reasons here because you mentioned about like, it's not the organization that doesn't get innovation, it's the heads of innovation. But also, if those heads of innovation, you mentioned like an entrepreneur in residence who had a startup, came in, made some money from the startup, came up, decided to work in an organization, comes in with the wrong idea of what innovation is, it kind of spoils innovation for the organization in the future. Leadership loses trust in innovation. It it it, it regards everything the innovation does, innovation team does with suspicion. And that is a recipe for disaster. Yeah, no, absolutely. And what's interesting about that is that you get this, you know, former startup entrepreneur, this, you know, jeans guy with a blazer or whatever, this is kale juice. He's walking around the organization. Hey, can you see me, man? Can you, can you see my kale, my kale juice, man? Oh, there you go. I was really enjoying that. I'm talking about you, Mr. Kale Juice. So, you know, this, he, this former entrepreneur is inside this large organization, but because they're so brash. So I, I, do, this, I do this survey, right, when I'm running my workshops, where I ask people, what is the most important characteristic of a corporate innovator or an entrepreneur or a part? What is the number one thing that they need to have in their, in their sort of DNA? And I put up these things like, you know, entrepreneurial, in, intrinsically motivated, focused, whatever, you know, market focused. 
And then I put political acumen as one of the ones, right? And then I just have people vote for which one they think of those is the most important for a corporate entrepreneur. And most of the time, people are voting for stuff like entrepreneurial and intrinsically motivated. And then, but, but the truth is, the most important characteristic of an intrapreneur or a corporate innovator that makes them distinct from an entrepreneur working on their own startup is political acumen. The only way a corporate innovator succeeds is by building relationships with people who work in the core business. They need the capacity and ability to build a bridge between their innovation team and the sales teams, their innovation team and legal and compliance, their innovation team and the HR team, their innovation team and the marketing team. Because ultimately, the only way an innovation scales, like you can do MVPs all day long, but if when you actually want to start scaling, you now need to collaborate with those colleagues. Now, if you've been burning bridges because you're the entrepreneur in residence, you now have people actively rooting for you to fail. Like, innovation is hard to do already. <laughs> but now, you have people that were supposed to be helping you scale now actively rooting for you to fail. And regardless of how great your idea is, the frustration of most innovators that I see, they're like, but I showed them the data. The customers were there, the money was there, and they still refuse to scale the ideas. Like, yes, because you burnt that bridge on your way in. It didn't even take you like a week. You'd already burnt all the bridges, right? So it's really important that innovators really start to think about that because it's not just the fact that you can deliver value or show them that the idea works. You also then need to scale the idea. And you can't scale the idea on your own. You know, it's one of the reasons I love doing this show is because oftentimes it's not, you know, we can talk about the different types of innovators, but also, often it's ignorance. It's, it's not knowing, you know, and oftentimes people take a head of innovation job not knowing what it actually means and, it, and, and confusing innovation with creativity. And they're very different things. Very, 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 very different things. Remember that these institutions exist. Unless you're working in a nonprofit, okay? So if you're working in a nonprofit, that's fine. Um, I, spend a, I, I spend about 20%, 30% of my time working with nonprofits. But even there, I'm picking a fight with the heads of innovation about the impact. What is the impact metric? If you're working in a humanitarian situation and you're launching innovations there, what is the metric that we're going to measure that, that innovation didn't make things worse? Because I'm, I'm African, so I've been in situations where, you know, there was a, a nonprofit doing something to help the community, and when they left, things got worse. So what is the impact that this is actually having? And is this sustainable impact? Is it positive impact? And are we tracking those metrics? So even there, we want you to have impact. So, you know... Going back to the you know normal just entrepreneurial context inside a large organization, there those companies exist for profit for a profit motive. Ultimately, the CEO has to report to the board about how much the company is growing in terms of revenue and profits and, and 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 customer numbers. That is the ultimate metric. So the question for the innovator is, what are you doing to contribute to that metric? It raises a really important one, which is. I talked about that idea of asking questions before you even join the company. But when you do get in the door, you need to make sure that you're aligned strategically. So everything you do, because you talked about those early wins, which are so important because that gains your friends. And, and you know, one of the things, there's a couple of things in this question. One is, one of the really, really difficult things for innovators is they have to hand over the credit and the credit is almost like brownie points that can be, you know, maybe paid back in the future. But that's really difficult because credit's hard to come by as a head of innovation. But the other thing is to make sure that the things you're working on 
are aligned with the overall strategy of the organization. Yeah, absolutely. Um, innovation teams are often quick to celebrate that they got the innovation lab. But I often say, this is one of my favorite things to say. I'm like, you know, I'm like, you know, old dad jokes, like dad keeps telling us. <laughs> my old dad joke is just because they've given you an innovation space doesn't mean that they've given you space to innovate. Love it. And so you have to think about transitioning beyond just the innovation space and start thinking about, okay, where is the strategic space here? Like, is there like a, a, um, a strategic initiative that's connected to innovation? Is there a strategic thesis around the future and things that leaders want to explore? And if not, ask the question until you get an answer, right? And then the other one is, is there space for collaboration with a core business? Is there space to scale? Who is going to be waiting for your idea when it's ready for scale? I remember talking to a guy, a, re- a really close friend of mine who was, you know, running innovation at like a, a an investment bank in Omaha. And he was saying, we used to call ourselves the home for homeless ideas. That's what they used to call their innovation of the home for homeless. If you have an idea that nobody wants to work on inside the company, bring it to us. We'll help you with it, right? The home for homeless ideas. And then he said, you know, tonight we realized that if an idea is homeless when it comes here, it'll still be homeless when it leaves. So being a home for homeless ideas is not a scalable model for an, for, for an innovation lab. That was a really important one that asking the question, okay, well, what happens if we do create a product that is the product for the future for this organization? What happens then? Because oftentimes maybe leaders don't expect that to happen. And then you can stumble across a great new business model, for example, or a new product or service, introduce it to the organization and they don't know what to do with it. You know, Kodak, for example, you know, creating the digital cameras, like, well, hide that thing away because it's going to cannibalize us in the future. How do, we, how do we think about that? Yeah, so that's, that's where the bridge to the core really matters. So, so there's two practices there, right? There's one practice where every innovation lab should have an active portfolio of products and services that they're working on. So they're trying to improve the organization. So they're working on 10 to 12 products that they're that, that they're kind of testing, iterating, or, or whatever it is, maybe 20 you know, products, whatever, five, like it doesn't really matter. But part of the work of working on those products and services and those new value propositions is constantly communicating with the organization, showing them a picture of the future, almost saying to leaders, like, look over there across that bridge in that innovation lab. Coming towards you is Project X. We've already shown that 100 customers want it. We've already built a solution that seems to be resonating. We've signed up X amount of people, and we're getting to the point where we might need uh, resources from the technology organization to help us ramp up this uh, project. We're probably going to need that within the next six to eight months. So you're constantly in communication with leadership about what's coming towards them so that they can start to prepare themselves for, okay, so if, if if that's coming, which one of us is, is going to take that up? How are we going to scale it? Should we spin it out? Whatever, right? But you can't just show up one day with like, I mean, you can imagine, this is a joke like I, I, that I always tell, like imagine like you're like, you know, the, the head of a division inside, in, inside a large company. Let's say your, your name is Karen. And so, you know, Mr. Innovation, head of innovation guy turns up, he's holding his kale juice and goes, hey, Karen, <laughs> we've been working on this project for the last two years, we think it's ready to scale now. So you need to take it up. It's like, no, I don't need to take it up. Like two weeks ago, I was on a retreat with the CEO 
we made our roadmap about what I need to do this year and your thing wasn't on it. So you can't just turn up here now and tell me that I need to do it. It's completely disconnected from my goals. It has nothing to do with my life. Please get out of my office. And what the kale juice guy will do is go, see, Karen, she's hard to work with. She's an MBA. She doesn't understand innovation, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, no, dummy, you don't get it. Like, Karen should have already known about this two years ago. And she should have been able to track its path towards her from two years ago to today. So that when you're walking through the door, she already knows what to anticipate. Oh, hey, welcome, Aiden. What's the progress on that thing? Do you think we can start to sort of scale it now? So that even when she goes for that retreat with the CEO, she can raise it and go, you know, I've been talking to Aiden and I think we should put this on the roadmap because I think we can scale it. So that's what building a bridge to the core is about. It's about building that relationship. And that's why that's the superpower of a pirate in the Navy, the ability to build those relationships, right? Yeah, I often think about that one, Ted, i.e. where you, you, it's in the interest of speed sometimes, or like, well, if I don't have Karen involved, I'll be able to get to the end product quicker. But then it mightn't be a useful product that when you have that kind of friction, the friction is helpful where she's inputting kind of going, well, customers are moving in this direction, etc. It's kind of like getting outside the building, except you're getting outside the lab here across the organization, as you say, building a, a bridge. And uh, I've just noticed stocks and kale jupes are plummeting, man. What, what are you doing here? You're ruining. I've invested in kales. God damn it. But, uh, <laughs> speaking, speaking of kale, kale juice, you talk about channeling the inner Silicon Valley. So this is innovation theater again. But, but it's important as well to know, and, and people may want to do this, that if the innovation is theater, then you know what to do. You also know, well, that's the plan then. And actually, I'm happy to be innovation theater. That's a totally different thing. I bring in speakers, I I do events, etc, etc. And you talk about how important this is to know within organizations. Yeah, if that's, if you think that's what you're going to do, then for sure do that. I mean, I, I once met a lady who did that for 20 years. Because the CEO was happy with that. He was happy with the vibe that her, her, you know, her space created, was happy with the feeling of entrepreneurialism that it created amongst the employees, even if like no value was created for that. And the CEO was in the job for 20 years, so this lady was in the job for 20 years. And then the moment the CEO changed, the new CEO coming from where he came from, was like, oh, we have an innovation lab. Well, that's awesome. So how many products have we launched from the lab? <laughs> right? It's like, no, zero. It's like, well, you're fired. So that's the life cycle of the of of the innovator. 20 years, if you get along with the CEO, if the CEO changes every three years, you last for three years. And so you need to be careful of that as well if you're, if you're engaged in just innovation theater. Another add-on to this was that you said that oftentimes people will go, well, at least they're building capability. They're probably using lean startup techniques, for example, or new ways of thinking and innovating and failing fast, et cetera, et cetera. And then you say you get inside the lab and oftentimes within the lab, they're not using any of these techniques. Yeah. And you know, I learned that first. I learned that first at startup accelerators. Like never mind the large companies. I went, I used to work with startup accelerators, like, you know, Rockstar Accelerator and, and you know, all the various all, all over the world. And what I discovered was you have to force the startup to go talk to customers. Like you have to fight with them. Like they don't even have, at least people who work inside large companies have salaries. So you can understand their complacency. But startup founders, like this is your life. They won't talk to customers. They'd rather write the code. Great. And so, so startups are really bad at being startups. 
So then you create the innovation lab. You put these entrepreneurial guys inside the lab. And what do they want to do? They just want to write code. They don't want to go out and talk to customers, build business models, etc. So you can say you're building capabilities, but you can fail for just those two reasons, which is one, they themselves are not doing it. And if they are, two, they're isolated from the rest of the organization. So nobody can really see and learn from what they're doing. So that becomes something else that you have to solve for. We've kind of focused so far on looking in the mirror as a, as a corporate innovator, but also then the organization can totally frustrate innovators. And you say in order to help a company build a sustainable innovation process, we have to understand what the company is doing to frustrate innovation. And you list a reason, a list of reasons that innovators leave. I'd love if you'd share some of these. Number one is, you know, they don't even have an innovation strategy or anything. They're just like, go do some cool innovation stuff. <laughs> and like, Can you please tell us like what you want us to do? They go, no, you're the startup guys, go do something. So you go do something. And while you're doing it, you go, yeah, can I just like get access to customers, please? To talk? No, you can't talk to customers because the sales director, that's the sales director's job. Okay, so then, you know, you, you kind of grind through that and then you sort of bring the idea to them, like, I've got this thing that's ready to scale. It's like, well, what is that? Like, who are you? Like, but you're the, I'm the guy you sent to do stuff. Remember me? You know, so there's so much frustration there that leaders can actually cause and then one of my favorite ones is when leaders are just asking really like pointless questions about like what, what, what revenue are you going to give me in year five? Like I don't even know who the customer is. You're asking me what revenue I'm going to give you in year five. So there's a whole bunch of stuff that leaders do that frustrate innovators. And so that's why for me, Aiden, right, there's two types of innovation roles that have to happen at the same time. One is the innovation team that's working on products and services. Those are the folks that usually get frustrated by leaders. And then one is the innovation team that's working on influencing leaders and building a process for innovators. One way to think about it is to think about the distinction between creating innovations and creating innovators. And so what is your job, right? Are you interested in working on products and services? Because we can help you with that. Maybe you can hide the idea, protect it, navigate it through politics. Or are you interested in creating innovators? And people who are interested in creating innovators are the kinds of people who if, if an innovation team runs into a problem with legal and compliance, they don't just solve that problem for that one team. Instead, they have a conversation with legal and compliance about how they can solve it for that team and all the other teams that are going to come behind that team. And so what they're doing is they're building a pathway for innovators to, to do their work so they can remove all those blockers that you're talking about that frustrate in, in innovators. And then there are those that will focus on innovations those are the ones that are creating value propositions, business models, testing products, launching new cool stuff. And so that distinction has to be very clear in the mind of the head of, 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 of innovation. They could do both, but they need to know when they're doing what and make sure that they're tracking their success with that. Also, another kind of conundrum that appears is like the matrix, choose the blue or the red pill. And this is a really important one. Do I go for growth? Or do I go for transformation? Again, they're very different things. Exactly. Do I work on changing the organization to make innovation repeatable? Or do I work on creating value and creating new growth? Those are two different jobs, right? You could do new growth without transformation. It's hard, but I've seen people who can do it. They can hide their projects. They can get diplomats to represent them. They can finagle resources from colleagues, et cetera, et cetera, until they figure out a way to scale their idea which is a different job to transformation because with transformation, you're basically in a confrontation with the company. You know, what you were talking about, you know, 
making sure there's the right nutrients in the garden rather than the flowers. You're digging up the garden and planting the nutrients in there so that when innovation teams start working, they're working within the right context. And that requires um, uh, a different constitution, like in the stomach. You have to have a, uh, uh, this ability to have difficult conversations every day. I think it was Jack Welch said, if the rate of change on the outside exceeds the change on this rate of change on the inside, the end is nearer. And you talk about the two rhythms that the organization moves at and then the innovation team moves at or that change team moves at. They move at very different rates. And Clayton Christensen said organizational capabilities trump human capabilities. So it doesn't matter how good your innovator is or how persistent they are. They'll fail if the organizational capabilities can't carry those new ideas. Exactly. I mean, you might get one or two successes, but to make it repeatable, absolutely not. And so that's why... We have this model that I designed with Alex Osterwald about how to assess um, a company's innovation culture. And what we prioritized at the top of that was leadership support, things like strategic guidance, portfolio management, et cetera, and then organizational design, things like, you know, where does the innovator sit inside the organization? What's the org structure? What is the HR incentives around innovation, right? And then only at the bottom did we put innovation practice, like tools and skills and all that. because you can have tools and skills all you want, but if the org design and leadership support are not there, it doesn't matter. I've trained people on business model canvas. They leave the workshop excited. They get back to work and they can't do any of that because the line managers asking them com- completely different things. The thing we really always need to remember is that with change initiatives, you need you need people to engage with. You need people to change minds. Like you talked about, you need to be politically astute. You need to speak politique in order to be able to sell your ideas, et cetera, et cetera. In, in my book, I talk about this idea that you can't change business models till you change mental models. So you need to change how people think and interact. But you point out, and I was delighted to see it because I've done a couple of shows on this and a couple of people, regular listeners are like, well, why did you do a show on humility? And humility, you put a whole chapter in the book because it is such an important aspect of being an innovator, but also being open to new ideas and new suggestions. Yes, absolutely. And um, I think one of the people, one of the things that people struggle with and um, I think J- Justin Khan just tweeted that, right? Justin Khan is a guy who, who, who is like a Silicon Valley entrepreneur. He just put out a tweet today which said, Kale juice rocks. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, he didn't do that. <laughs> he, he said, um, there's nothing as intoxicating as the desire to be right. Right. And so we could, it's, it's pretty obvious to us as innovators where the world is going, how things are changing and what companies need to do in order to survive in that new world. And once that truth hits us, we can't understand for the life of us why other people don't see things the way we do. And the moment you can't understand why other people don't see the world the way you do, you lose humility right there. Because now in your interaction with those people, you're you're basically condescending. Even though you don't intend to be, you're basically condescending. So Alex Osterwald is really big on, let's stop being cynical. If our leaders don't understand how the world changes, it's our fault as innovators, advisors, thinkers. Right? We're not showing them the, you know, the truth in a manner that resonates with them. And that's part of the job, again, of being, a, of, of being a corporate innovator. So you have to already accept that people don't have to believe your truth. right? 
Instead, what you're asking for is a chance for you, for, for, for you to illustrate that this might work. And if you approach it with that, you really just say, listen, I know that you've run your company for so many years. I know you're having great success right now. I just need a sliver of space. Just give me a chance to show you this thing. And if, and if I show you that it works and, and, I, and I deliver a couple of results that we can agree together today for this small investment, then we can have a bigger conversation about how to scale it, right? Rather than walking in there and going, you're about to get disrupted. You're going to die. <laughs> I'm the kale juice guy. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> rather, than, rather than walking in and, and doing that and the guy's like but like my bonus last year was 15 million like like who is this guy right <laughs> that becomes like uh, you know the the one and once that dynamic is in play then it's really hard to influence this episode's brought to you by vicky mccullen kale juices you can buy online at the innovation show.io moving on from our, our note, note from our sponsors um, you, you mentioned a really important one. Innovator's Dilemma, by the way, was my first book on innovation, trying to understand it. And, and by the way, at the time I read it, I was, it was, it's a quite an academic book if you're coming out of fresh. And I didn't quite get everything. I got some points, but one I totally got, and one that you call out in the book, is what Clayton Christensen talked about, may rest in peace, that top execs think they're running the organization but who's really running the organization is middle management. And you refer to them, you've heard to them referred to as permafrost, because again, going back to what you talked about, about speaking politique, or being able to influence those around you, if you can't do that, middle management will absolutely resist, mainly because they're incentivized for other things. Yeah, no, absolutely. So a lot of CEOs and top execs are really constantly talking about we need to become more innovative. They might even go to Silicon Valley or one of those Silicon Valley tours and come back all inspired. And then they put the message out to the company that they really want more new ideas. And then what happens is in private, they are meeting with their middle managers and setting goals for the year. And there are no innovation goals for the year. All the goals are about revenue, targets, you know, goals, right? And then the middle manager goes back to the office and then Tendai turns up with a, with a new innovation. And then the middle manager is like, we're not working on that this year. These are my goals. And so we get frustrated as innovators because we're thinking, well, the CEO said we should innovate. So the only reason why innovation is not happening is because these middle managers are stifling the innovation. right? And so that becomes like a challenge. I, want, I actually wrote an article once called In Defense of Middle Managers That Stifle Innovation. And it's like, <laughs> my least clicked on article ever. Like nobody, <laughs> nobody wants to read an article defending yeah. middle manager. And so, it, but the truth is like, you can fight the middle manager if you want, but the CEO is not going to come down and like work on the project with you. You still need to work with your line managers. And so you still have to build that, you know, those bridges and, and, and relationship. I was just thinking maybe we've lost lots of our regular listeners. They've turned off by now. They're like, not listening to those guys. <laughs> I'm going off to finish my goddamn kale juice. You, you, you make fun of kale juice, but you support middle managers. <laughs> Get out of my face. These guys suck. One of the things you talked about, though, here, which, again, is difficult to, to – it's a hard truth to swallow, is – measurement and accountability because oftentimes in labs you're like going oh measurement will kill what we're doing here and and we're not we're not talking about there's a difference between measurement by old metrics that are for an established organization that's about exploitation 
but with exploration, you still need metrics. But most importantly, you need some accountability, even for your own sake. Yeah, no, I mean, one of the things that frustrates CEOs is heads of innovation saying, no, 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 innovation is a black box. Just give us the money and leave us alone. Right? That's, that's, that's like, no, we don't want to do that. There was a moment maybe like, I don't know, 100 years ago, and maybe maybe that was the case. But with all the developments we have now from like design thinking to customer development to lean startup to business model generation to innovation metrics and innovation accounting now, we know the right metrics to track, right? And, the, and those metrics are really, on one level, pretty basic. It's just one question, which is how close are you to finding a business model that works? And you show us that you're close to finding a business model that works by showing us that what you've worked on resonates with customers in terms of value and that customers are willing to pay. And what customers are willing to pay is more than it costs you to create. And that once you figure that out, there's a path towards scale. Like these are metrics that we can actually track. You don't have to tell me exactly what revenue you're going to make for me in, in year five, which is the wrong metric. I just need you to tell me the correct metric about this is what we're finding out. This is what we're learning. And because of these learnings, we think we're on track towards success. And being on track towards success is how leaders decide whether to keep investing in something or to divest from it. And so innovators have to be completely explicit about that. I think one of the things I say is like leaders can't pick the winning ideas on day one themselves. So they, they can only create the context in which winning ideas emerge, which means that they have to give innovation teams autonomy, right? But that autonomy is given in exchange for transparency. That's the deal. You get autonomy, you give us transparency, so we can see exactly what you're doing and which things are, 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 are coming close to success. And then we can know that our investments are actually creating value. And a, a final word I thought would be helpful was we mentioned about how incentives change behavior, for example, and middle management are incentivized to manage essentially the decisions made in the past that how they're landing in the present and how accountable they are. So you talk about if you're going to change an organization design, you need to absolutely consider how you recalibrate rewards and incentives. If people are being bonused on how much revenue they created in the last quarter, then they're incentivized to keep growing revenue from the last quarter. Right? That's what they're incentivized to do. Um, at 3M had a really nice metric that I saw that, um, while I was doing some research, which was they had this thing they called a stretch goal where they, they set a metric for middle managers that said like 25 to 30% of revenue must be from new products launched in the last four years. And that's how your bonus is calculated. To what extent did you hit that, that kind of stretch goal? And so that incentive forces middle managers now to go looking for innovations, right? Rather than the incentive of just like, you know, quarterly profit on, 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 on current products. So incentives do matter. They do drive behavior. You, you do get some people who start to mess with the incentives, like so they understand actually, well, if I hold that back till next quarter, then I'll get double the bonus, etc. But the overall picture is like, does it matter? Because you're actually changing behaviors. And, you know, you talk about a 1000 flowers blooming, you're actually backing more positive flowers, ones that can actually have a chance of scaling and doing well in the organization. Tend I, I, I usually finish with a, a quote. I have one here, a, a lovely quote I pulled from the book. Before I finish, I just want to remind everybody, I have a copy of the book. I'm going to grab it from the shelf. I have a copy of Pirates in the Navy here up for grabs. Just sign up to the innovationshow.io newsletter and you'll be in with a chance to win. It's beautifully illustrated as well by Holger Niels Pohl. 
I'm sure he's a friend of yours, so I thought I'd give him a shout out. And I just wanted to ask you where people can find you. Um, and while I'm reading my end quote, perhaps you'll think about your message to people in innovation, people going into these labs. What If you had an elevator moment to, t- to tell them what you thought they should do, what could that be? But before I ask you that, where can people find you? I'll read my end quote and then I'll let you finish today's show. Cool. Yeah. So, you know, uh, if you want to find me, it's www.tendaiviki.com. That's where my personal website is. And then for work or anything connected to work, it's www.strategizer.com. Strategizer with a Z-E-R at the end, strategizer.com. The quote I pulled, Tendai, is, the humility to allow ourselves to be held accountable will earn us the credibility to be allowed to begin doing our work. If we are to resist being held accountable, this will create suspicions about our intentions. As pirates in the Navy, we want credibility and legitimacy. We are no longer running an underground operation. I love that because that encapsulates so many aspects of innovation and change for me. And I thought it was a lovely way to finish. What about you? What What's your final message for our audience? Connected to what you just said, um, I'm really trying to push innovators to become authentic. Like just be true to what is valuable, right? I know that we have jobs and we have mortgages to pay and bills to pay and all of that and Sometimes you know all the exciting flowery stuff makes it make, makes the job exciting. But if you take away anything from Pirates in the Navy, it's be really focused on making sure that you're doing things that are valuable, things that are authentic. Like be interested in mastering the craft of innovation and what really makes innovation works in, 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 in inside large organizations. Author of Pirates in the Navy: How Innovators Lead Transformation, Tendai Viki. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Aidan.